Hello, I'm Kim Katola, host of Cradle My Heart Radio. Our mission is preventing abortion and helping those it hurts. And our vision is to bring abortion recovery to the church, reaching out to equip and encourage pastors, elders, ministry leaders, and others so they can minister God's love to the millions of Christians personally impacted by this moral crisis of our time. Saving lives and healing hearts, this is Cradle My Heart Radio. Find us online at cradlemyheart.org. Where can you find God's voice in the noise on reproductive choice? For over a million women and men each year, the question goes beyond politics to become much more pressing and personal, both before and after the choice. And we are called to love the little children just as God does. Listen to Cradle My Heart Radio with your host, Kim Katola, speaker, writer, and broadcaster, sharing God's truth to prevent abortion and help those it hurts. Learn more at cradlemyheart.org. Thank you so much for being with us today. It's our pleasure to uh, be a voice of encouragement, I hope, always. Encouragement and equipping pastors and church leaders on preventing and repenting abortion in the church. What if the church was the first place that everyone thought of when there was a problem pregnancy. What if everyone who had experienced abortion, because the church really hasn't fulfilled that role, but what if everyone who experienced abortion knew church is the place to go for, you know, recovering, for repentance and for restoration in your faith and in your walk in life and in all your relationships? Uh, That is the vision here. That is what we are endeavoring to do excuse me, in in doing this work uh, of addressing abortion in the church and in the church leadership, how best to preach on it, how best to counsel. And so I'm happy today to welcome back to the program for part two of our conversation, uh, the uh, executive director and board member of Christian Chaplains and Coaching, ChristianChaplains.org, our guest, Pastor Jim Kirkland. Thanks so much for returning to continue the conversation with us today. Hi, Kim. Thank you for having me. It's just a pleasure to be with you today. Jim has been married to his wife, Virginia, for 40 years, and they have four children, four wonderful grandchildren, and he spent more than 25 years as an executive and CEO of a financial services and business consulting firm. But later feeling called to ministry, he attended Moody Theological Seminary, graduated with a master's in biblical theology, was ordained as a pastoral into the pastoral ministry in 2007, and has been a senior teaching chaplain since 2010. He is a board-certified chaplain, uh, dual-registered with both the Association of Certified Christian Chaplains and the Spiritual Care Association. He's a clinical pastoral education supervisor for the icpt.edu, and he manages the day-to-day operations of Christian chaplains and coaching. And Jim, we were talking last time, and I urge you to find that episode at cradlemyheart.org, about the ramifications of abortion as serious sin, and not as the unforgivable sin, which many people still labor under that misconception, but as something that God has a remedy for in our repentance, as something that, um, you know, needn't hold you back for the rest of your spiritual development, as I see happen so often with women in particular. They find themselves with their spiritual growth stunted, as a result of being unable to reconcile and come to terms with an abortion or more than one abortion in their past. And 
as we dive into the into this subject once more, I, I want to give you the chance to talk about you know your story and why you are personally pro life. I mean, as a chaplain, you have to deal with you know opinions across the spectrum, and you have to accept that not everyone is pro life. But um, you have disclosed to me that you are, and I'd love to hear the story of how that came about. Yeah, thank you for sharing. It's a it's a difficult story to share honestly when whenever you're being open, honest, transparent about sin or regret in your life. But we're called to be transparent and to confess our sins to one another so that we may be healed. That's found in James chapter five or sixteen. For me, I I have personal experience with abortion, and it has caused a profound regret. I still struggle with even today. In 1978, I eloped, ran away with my girlfriend so that we could live together. We were not Christian. Neither one of us were raised in a Christian home. We didn't really know anything about Christ except for that was the baby that went in the manger under the Christmas tree Hmm. once a year. Hmm. But we were in love with each other. We made some pretty major blunders in how we started our life out, and she got pregnant. And I thought, it's too soon. I can't, we can't have a child yet. I thought, I'm, I'm just starting my career. I, I can, we can't afford to have a baby. It's, it's going to change everything. All of our plans are going to go out the window. Look how everything is going to be changed if we have this child. And so, for selfish reasons, I convinced her to have an abortion, and that's what we did. Months later, months later, that same year, we met some Christian people in the community. We had just moved to this community. We didn't really know anybody there. We didn't have many friends at all. And these people invited us into a relationship with them. They didn't invite us to church, interestingly enough. They invited us to their home for dinner. And we really enjoyed our time with them, getting to know them. They were not judgmental, as we expected church people to be back at that time. And after a few weekly dinners with them and coming back at their invitation, and, and you know, they worked really hard to develop that relationship with us. And so over time, Jenny and I became convicted about Jesus, and we started attending church with them. And at church, I don't know how long we had gone there, maybe a month or two, we accepted Christ for salvation and made an old-fashioned altar call. Mm. You know, a lot of churches are not doing that anymore, but back then they did, and, and uh, Jenny and I went down to the front, and I remember Pastor um, Larry Lawrence, Pastor Larry Lawrence, received us and prayed over us as we got down on our knees and accepted Christ for salvation. And that little group of people that we were having dinner with that had befriended us, that was when they began to disciple us. I just loved in memory, in memory, I just love that they had not, they did not point fingers of judgment at our sin with the expectation that our lives were going to change until we had become safe, because that's the starting point for change. And they knew that intuitively, if I think back on it. I think it was a great model for discipleship, and it's one that I follow today as a teaching chaplaincy. But after we got saved, they began to mentor us and teach us and guide us and show us the Scripture and what God says is right and wrong with regard to life and lifestyle and attitudes and words. And they began to mentor us. And so we agreed that we needed to get married and comply with the Word of God, and we confessed our sin, and we prayed with them about 
the need that we had for forgiveness of all of our sins, but especially that sin that we were regretting of abortion. And so at church, we were then baptized, and then we got married. And I like to say Jenny and I walked the aisle at that church three times together. <laughs> the first time was to be saved, and then the second time was when we got baptized, and this was full immersion believers' baptism, boy. And I'll tell you what, and Pastor Larry held me down a few extra minutes for the third <laughs> bubble to come up, because he knew I needed it more than anybody. Then the third time we walked that aisle was to be married together. And that's been 44 years this November. We have four children now. We've got five grandchildren. To this day, my wife and I both have profound regret over that abortion. It brings even emotions to me as I'm talking with you about it and your listeners today. It's only been, it's only been even in recent years that Jenny's been able to truly forgive me mm. for the influence that I had on her back then for that decision that she didn't want to do, but she did. And truth, we're both equally responsible, and we both needed forgiveness from God, but we also realize now that we needed to forgive each other, and that's only been fairly recently. Even though we stayed together and loved each other, within the last five years, we have come to a profound acknowledgement and forgiveness of each other, and she's forgiven me the influence that I exerted on her. And you know what? We both have this nagging feeling that that child we aborted would have been a girl. I don't know why, but I always think with regret over my little girl that we don't have now because of that decision. So to this day, we regret it. We wish that we had our daughter with us. She'd be 44 years old this year. We continue to thank God for forgiving us but the regret remains with it. So, yeah, you can say, I've got some experience with this subject. Mm. I know firsthand from the man's point of mm-hmm. view about the sorrow that an abortion can produce in your life by being disobedient to God. And so, yeah, I'm pro-life. I'm profoundly pro-life. But why? Because now I know without any shadow of a doubt, that an unborn child is a child, a person that is created by God. And because I know the pain that comes from making a decision that goes against the will of God. And and yet, Kim, do you know what my two favorite words are in the Bible? Hmm. But God. Mm-hmm. Yes. And Jim, what a touching story. And I, I know it's never easy to share that. So... First of all, I want to acknowledge your loss, that this is a real loss in your family, in your marriage, in your own heart. And, um, you know, this knowledge that you have and that you share that you may have a daughter in heaven is so tender. And, you know, as I think about you sharing that story with us, um, I just, I know that uh, when I've heard stories, and every story is different, you know, some detail stands out, but but as I listen to your story and think about the fact that you weren't close to God, so it wasn't the fact that, you know, there was some angry Christian telling you abortion was a sin. It was your child's own witness to your heart that something very, someone very important was lost. 
And I think that uh, you've, you've conveyed that to us very compellingly. And I hope that anyone who is listening who is in a, a counseling situation or a preaching situation or a teaching Bible situation would understand just the tenderness that it, that's involved. It, it's so easy to think of abortion as some kind of a political uh, question or football or, you know, rights issue or um, even a medical or we're arguing about when life begins. It's a science question. Uh, all of these baggage <laughs> uh, items that are attached to it and, and, and freighted. And yet, I think if we as the body of Christ could simply embrace the reality that these children are made in God's image, known to him, valuable to him, of incalculable worth to us as their parents, I think we'd start to see that the the church would be a real force to change the culture. Tell Tell me your thoughts about the church's role in culture. Because I think that the church is, I want to say, very responsible for the fact that over 60 million children have, have, were lost to abortion before Roe versus Wade was overturned. And with the number of states that are still allowing it, the, the numbers just continue to grow. What, do, what does the church have to do with all of this, Jim? Oh, goodness, that, that's, a, that's a question that one that I'm quite passionate about, because I, I really personally believe that the Church in general, as both a pastor and a chaplain, that the Church is failing to influence the culture. We're more being influenced by culture than exerting influence over the culture. I like how John Maxwell taught on leadership. He, he said, leadership is influence. And if we, as Christians, are going to be leading, then we're going to be influencing, and we should be having an impact on our culture in one way or another. That doesn't mean lording our positions over. It doesn't mean exclamations to others of what they have to accept as right or wrong, because people are still going to make their own decisions, both inside the Church and outside of the Church. People are going to make bad decisions and bad choices. It's called sin. It's what we, it's where we live. C.S. Lewis described it as enemy-occupied territory. That's where we live. The problem is the Church is failing to exert the kind of influence over the culture that it needs what we're doing instead is becoming more like the worldly culture, or we're isolating ourselves from it. So the, the Church, on the one hand, is either becoming like the world, or the Church is isolating itself from the world, lacking an understanding of what cultural competency is. We teach cultural competency and cultural sensitivity in our chaplain training because we have to figure out how to live among people in a way that draws them into a friendship and a relationship. But what we do as Christians is we tend to listen only to respond. Uh, more often than not, somebody 30 seconds into talking to me, and we're all guilty of this, we're thinking about what to say rather than listening to understand. And that's a problem. We don't know how to hear. There's a reason why secular world associates Christianity with judgmentalism. There's a reason, because we don't really listen to hear them. We only listen to proclaim to them, to teach them, to tell them, while we ourselves are practicing gossip and dishonesty and things that are clearly sin. 
So listening to understand doesn't require that we agree with people. If we're going to be culturally competent and sensitive in the secular setting so that we can exert some influence, it doesn't require that we argue with them. It doesn't require that we bring correction to them when they may not be ready to listen. What we're told by God to do is love them and pray that God will open a door that we can share the reason for the hope that is within us, and we wait for it, because the Holy Spirit is responsible for that. We can't save anybody. Only God can save people. So we need to stop being afraid. This is, and I, I preach this all the time, especially among my pastor friends. We need to stop being afraid of encountering people from different cultures and beliefs, like we're going to get cooties or something. <laughs> but do listen. We do need to listen to understand them. I, I like to say that the mark of an intelligent person is the ability to listen to understand someone else without necessarily accepting it as true. So does my Christian belief hold water in the real world? If it does, it will make a difference. God wants us to live every aspect of our lives in a way that's shaped by our belief that Jesus is Lord, submitting to him as Lord. So we, we have to be willing to consider and enjoy people who come from different cultures, but we need to see them within a Christian perspective. After all, um, the scripture that comes to my mind is First Corinthians chapter 5, where Paul admonishes us as Christians not to judge those who are outside the Church. Of course, he teaches there that we are expected to live among them, regardless of whatever their life or lifestyle is, while trusting God for their salvation, our job is to love and serve all people. Certainly, in the Church, in 1 Corinthians chapter 5, Paul is suggesting that we have to hold each other accountable, and that's, that's something we're supposed to do for each other. That's part of discipleship. But in the secular, we're not supposed to judge, and we're not expected to live apart from them either. So, for me, I, I guess I would put it this way, I, I think in most cases the Church can be compared to two extremes that we see, and I like to call it the liberal camp and the castle camp. Mm, okay, <laughs> I like it. So let's say, the, <laughs> let's say this, the, the liberal camp seems to accept life apart from God as normative. Maybe they're not really acknowledging or recognizing that Christ is the only way. They seem to be living among the secular in a way where Christ is not believed to be the only way to be established with God. The coexist bumper sticker kind of represents people who use the word Christian to describe themselves. But this camp is so engaged with the culture. They're certainly giving water to people who are thirsty and blankets to people who are cold. But they seem to be engaged with the culture as to deny the essential belief that Christ it's Christ alone for salvation. It's Christ alone for restoration to God. There is only one way to God, as Jesus said, I'm the way, the truth, and the life, and no one comes to the Father but through me. We seem to be in the liberal camp leaving that truth. Whole passages of Scripture are being ignored, thrown out entirely. Romans chapter 1, for example, of that. So to me, that group, all people will be in heaven. Love wins. Nobody will exist in hell. They're likely to conform to the image of the world rather than to live as Scripture prescribes, influencing the world, pointing to Christ in all things, while ignoring what he says 
is right or wrong. But the other camp, the other extreme, is just ineffective in my mind. I call them the castle camp. The castle camp. They hide behind the safety of its church walls. It's a culture of us versus them Mm, mm -hmm. instead of us being with them. We all feel safer together in the church with the drawbridge up, maybe engaged in doing life only with those who profess the same as we do and all look like us and talk like us. They they may encourage one another for evangelism campaigns, handing out tracts door-to-door, the gates open, the drawbridge is lowered, and then the army of God sort of embarks on a on a day of telling people about Jesus, and then they run back to the safety of their castle <laughs> afterward. So that, that group isolates from the secular to do exactly what Paul said not to do. Just like the Pharisees of old, this group may have forgotten who our neighbor actually is. Mm. But even when we do engage in the secular, it's often to point fingers of judgment or argue with people over beliefs or disagree over political opinions, disagree even with genuine Christians who are believers in Jesus Christ who may understand a passage of Scripture differently than we do. And, uh, you know, to me, just view some of the social posts, like on Facebook. Oh, my goodness. Hmm. And shudder in disbelief what any bystander so, would think of Christianity if they were to read all of the comments from Christians. Well, right. There you go. <laughs> well, and yeah, you know, you as I think about your your analysis here, I, I don't, you know, some of it might be the apologetics training we've received or the evangelism training we've received that you have to have an answer for these arguments, you know, rather than um as you've proposed to us that we we have to have a listening ear. And we have to accept what we hear without fear that it's going to contaminate us somehow, you know, that we need to leave that to the Lord as to whether or not a person comes away. And I I always think about some of the apologetics training that I received. I know uh, Scott Klusendorf, and I haven't studied with Greg Kokel, but I think in his book about evangelism and tactics, you know, he talks about the fact that if either party gets angry, you as the evangelist lost the argument. Right. I mean, it's not up to us. And and then you think about, oh, my goodness, the social climate of the conversation around abortion and screaming and standing and screaming outside a Supreme Court justice's house. And, you know, and of course, that makes us angry if we're against it. And you and I, Jim, who share a, a common loss and that common regret, the earthly consequence of having made that choice, uh, you know, it's easy to get angry about people you know, dehumanizing children before their birth and leading us down that path, which I think probably happened to both of us. We were just ignorant, just stumbling along with the culture, you know, and and winding up, you know, grieved for the rest of our lives. Not to say that we don't grieve with hope, but I, I just feel like anger is not the answer. Arguments are not the answer. And as I as think we've just got about uh, less than three minutes remaining, Jim, I want to just give you the chance to talk about what encourages you uh, in serving the broken and the lost. What is it that pastors and church leaders can gain from entering into this ministry with people who are not necessarily persuaded of the Lordship of Christ but or people who are uh, limited in that belief because of the failure to, you know, have repented fully. Well, what encourages you about serving people 
who so desperately do need the Lord? Well, in a word, it would be relationship. We, we serve a God who designed us for relationship. First, relationships with Him, but also relationships with people. And if we don't have love for God, we're not going to have re- a love for people, and we're not going to be engaged in relationships. So I, I find joy in listening to the stories of people and engaging in real relationship with them. To me, that's what encourages me, is whether they're believers or not believers, whether they will believers or be believers or they will never be believers, doesn't really matter to the instructions that I understand from God about how to do life with them in their context while pointing to changed life in Christ by putting that kind of a life on display for them to view, which I pray will attract them into a relationship with Christ. I I just close with one final thought. In Luke chapter 10, you find an encounter where Jesus sent the disciples out on their very first training mission, right? And he told them what to do. Don't go alone. Go with somebody else. Knock on somebody's door and offer the hand of friendship. And if they accept your offer of friendship, the Bible uses the word extend peace, and if their peace settles, then you're good. Stay there with them, eating and drinking what they give you, and share that the kingdom of God is standing within their reach. And that implies spending time, even eating. They didn't have fast food back then, right? So it took a while to have that meal. And so so that means a willingness to have comfort in their context, eating their food, even food that was thought to be unclean, and be a friend. So, last thing, if they refuse the offer of friendship, that is where Jesus said, turn your back on that place, shake the dust off your feet, and move on to offer friendship to somebody else. It's about relationships, and that's what gives me the courage and the encouragement to serve the broken and the lost. Beautiful. Jim Kirkland, our guest, he's Executive Director of Christian Chaplains and Coaching. We'll link to his ministry so you can learn more at cradlemyheart.org. Thanks so much, Jim. This is Cradle My Heart Radio with Kim Katola, preventing abortion and helping those it hurts. Please get in touch with Kim. Find out more at cradlemyheart.org. You can listen to the podcast on all platforms.